Hello, everyone. Welcome to this live stream episode of the Comical Heathen podcast. I am your host, Dr. Jerry Jaffe, and uh, I'm glad uh, that anyone is here listening to us. Uh, and I say us because I am joined by a very good friend of mine who's going to be today's guest co-host, John Hensler. How are you, John? I'm doing very well. How are you, Jerry? I am okay. Hey, uh, for people listening now or in the future, when I post this, The Comical Heathen is a podcast I started a couple of years ago as part of a research project. Sorry. Uh, I'm not smart enough to do the live chat and talk to you at the same time. Um, <laughs> but so I'm writing a book about satire is what I'm saying. And I started interviewing um, some other comedians. In fact, if you go back to the catalog, the most recent interview is with John Fuglesang from Sirius FM. So go listen to that interview. But that's why I started the podcast. So I could have an excuse to interview people for my book. And then that transformed into a live show that I started taking on the road last year, about seven minutes before the coronavirus pandemic hit. So there hasn't been much uh, live comedy going on at that point. <laughs> well, that's what I was going to ask you, just how you're dealing with all of that. Because I know a lot of people are doing stuff with Zoom and different platforms like that. So just wondering, like, what kind of live shows do you have? Have you been booked? Are you booking any shows yourself? And what's going on with you as far as that goes? Oh, well, yeah, thanks for the, the quick update. I'll, I'll keep it brief. But when... Um, Venues started reopening over the summer. I have featured a couple times at the Funny Stop down in Cuyahoga Falls. Pete down there does have the tables spaced out and they're practicing social distancing. And it seems okay if you feel comfortable going out. It's probably a, a good place to go. So I've done some shows there. Uh, I haven't done any live shows with the Comical Heathen other than working on the podcast uh, part of it. It's just working on the writing and working on the book and then waiting I basically said to myself, self, I'm going to wait till next year. So I'll start looking for bookings for the Comical Heathen in January and February if things are at least settled down, if not improved by then. Yeah, it's kind of a weird just because it's like I don't it's hard to plan out anything definitively in the future because who knows what it's even going to look like in a month or two to even figure out. So I figure I'm not funny enough to risk anybody's life anymore. So I'm kind of just kind of staying in. <laughs> waiting to see what kind of how everything pans out next year and what's going to happen with this election and where we're going to be next spring and summer. So that's, it'll be interesting, I guess. Um, Doss, who is listening right now, uh, just sent me a question about the podcast. He asked if I ever do conversations with comedians about their thoughts on performing at colleges nowadays. Mm. Uh, a great question when it comes to satire or even just sort of edgy, there's kind of a feeling that it's hard for that, you know, that colleges want sort of bland, vanilla, safe comedians, and that uh, some headliners like Jerry Seinfeld and others have just said they won't do colleges anymore. Bill Mars had trouble with colleges. So there's definitely something there to talk about. I will just say on the podcast, I focus more on satire and religious satire. And that topic has come up a couple times along the way, but it wouldn't, I wouldn't call it like a main thing that we talk about. I'd be interested to talk about it sometime, though, maybe a separate <laughs> podcast or have you on, because it's something that's interesting to me, because I'll say this and then kind of let it be at that. I feel like a lot of old comedians feel like right. they have a tough time performing at uh, colleges. A lot of right. younger comedians, maybe not so much. I think it's maybe just a fact of maybe you're just not, that's not your demographic anymore. You know, maybe Jerry right. Seinfeld's time doing uh, colleges <laughs> is done. And right. now that's more a younger person's game who's kind of more attached to that kind of crowd, you know? Well, it's definitely true that like deans of student activities, at least at some colleges, you know, they're the gatekeepers who usually book comedians. And if you're not an A-lister who has, you know, name recognition, they're probably not going to book a road comic or a local comic who isn't sort of a PG or safe. At least as a generalization, that's probably true. Right. I will say I teach at Lake Erie College and I book comedians directly through the theater department. And I tell people, my, I tell the comedians, it, you do whatever you want. This is a free speech zone. And I tell the students and audience, this is a free speech zone. And the comedian's going to say whatever they want, including adult language or any content they want to cover. And I have never had a complaint from anyone from about any of the shows or comedians I've booked. I did once, and I want to confirm this because uh, local uh, or Cleveland-based comic uh, Jeremy Shear once did a show for me. And he gets really blue, even sort of disgustingly blue. Mm -hmm. And uh, <laughs> someone threw up once at my college. Like oh, a student gosh. had to run to the bathroom. <laughs> I witnessed that. So uh, that goes what's to show. 
what's the author's name? Chuck Chuck Palachuk or whatever his name yeah. is, where he goes and does readings and people just throw up at the readings. <laughs> <laughs> I guess that's that's as good as a laugh, I guess, right? <laughs> well, if you want a reaction, if you want a reaction. Yeah. But I will say, guttural. E even when that happened, no one actually complained. I mean, right. so I, I, I wonder if the gatekeepers are being a little too, you know, sheepish about what the yeah. students can tolerate. Right. And I think at the end of the day, you can you can say what you want to say if it's funny and, and you're not kind of, you know, diminishing people or marginalizing people. You know, if you're making a good point and you're making it in a way that's kind of raunchy or using some kind of language, as long as the point is on point and you're being funny, I think most people are, yep. are, are pretty open to comedy. So, hey, um, another live listener, Joe Computer Dude, literally just <laughs> asked me. um <laughs> if uh how i compare just situations in other countries i've lived to now uh, i don't know if he just means uh having donald trump as president or other social <laughs> factors or comedy i will just say john and i don't want to get into an hour long this is also probably for a separate podcast <laughs> yeah i lived in japan and new zealand collectively for over 10 years and both of those countries have forms of universal health care and people in america just don't know what they're talking about Huh. And people co complain that I don't know that you that it's somehow awful to have socialized health care are just, you know, blissfully or willfully ignorant. Uh, I will not say that either country's health care system was perfect, but given how fucked up our health care system is, I'll take their imperfections over our fucked it up -edness. So, but uh, <laughs> that's all I'll say about that. Unless you have a <laughs> follow up question, John. <laughs> Well, I'll just say this real quick, and then we can get into some of the questions I've uh, written and that some other people sent in. But uh, sure, I, I used to be one of those people who would say, oh, well, you know, if you like Canada, socialized medicine so much, just go there. And my brother was actually in Italy for a semester studying abroad, got a moped, flipped himself off the handles, and like had to go get stitches in his chin. Yep. And I remember saying, oh, yes, uh, you had to go get Italian socialized medicine, didn't you? And he was like, yeah, it was really nice. I walked right in there and was worried because I was in a different country. I wasn't sure about not having insurance in this country and how this was going to work out. They went in. I was there for like a half hour, 45 minutes. They stitched me up <laughs> and I was <laughs> on my way. You know, it, yeah. it was like and to me, it was kind of like, oh, that doesn't sound so bad. What, what am I so worried about? Well, I have three kids. My first two kids were born in Japan and both of them. My wife went to like a, with a doctor, birthing clinic. We were never given any bills of any kind. Her first child, because mm -hmm. it was the first one, they let her stay for a week to recuperate. And the city that we lived in had a uh, new birth fund where they just gave you like $1,000 to cover the cost of things. Oh, nice. My third child happened to be born in America about while we were still living in Japan. And, the, you know, the hospital took care of my wife. All of like the professional medical care was fine. On the way out, we had to meet with the billing office about how we were going to pay for all of this. You know, my brothers, they had their kids in America and they had insurance. And my one brother was telling me that his deductible was $5,000 and that counted for his wife and his newborn. So he was given a bill for $10,000 on his way out. Of the, oh, gosh. <laughs> so so I would prefer the Japanese system where you went in for three days and you left with a thousand dollars, you know? <laughs> yeah. Instead of uh, having to go bankrupt because yeah. you had a kid. <laughs> so that's actually the thing I, I, the biggest difference that I talk about when people ask me what it was like. Um, but the purpose of today's podcast is to talk about religion, satire, um, pseudoscience. And I was particularly fishing around online for people to ask me questions about conspiracy theories. So we're going to go, uh, you know, keep this to about an hour. We started at three, so we've got about 45 minutes left. John, why don't we get into some of these questions that people sent in? Uh, so the first one isn't really about conspiracy theories, but we'll gradually get into it. Sure. Uh, well, maybe I, it is. I said people could ask questions about anything, so what the heck? Yeah, and th this is definitely, this is definitely, I feel like this is a question my dad would ask. Not a, That's not an insult. My dad asks good questions, so. <laughs> uh, so the first question is from John Heese, I believe his, his last name is. Uh, why do 7-Eleven doors or any place that's open 24 hours a day uh, have locks on the doors? <laughs> so I do want to give a shout out to John. I know John. He actually is a Canadian fellow who lives in Japan. And he and I became friends uh, when I was in Japan in the 90s. And uh, we're still Facebook friends. That E, -E is, a, they call it a German uh, okay. vowel. So, so it's, it's, no, it's Hayes, S actually. Hayes. 
Oh, okay. Like H-E-Y-E-S. Double, yeah, double E comes out as a A, I guess. Hayes. At least that's how they do it in Canada. So what the heck? But so, uh, yeah, so I know John. I, you know, I haven't seen him for many years, but we keep in touch on Facebook. Yeah, I mean, that's a, first of all, there's a very simple answer. Uh, that is because when you go to the door store, they only sell doors that have locks on them. <laughs> there's no there's no door store that sells doors without locks there that's fair and, and then also <laughs> you never know when you might have to lock the door when i was in high school a uh, quick boring story everybody so this is your chance to go to the bathroom if you have to yeah. i mean young too like 13 or 14 a friend of mine and i went for a walk one weekend like friday or saturday and you know we're kids we, we weren't up to no good but we were up to nothing and while <laughs> walking around we would always do this joke where we'd walk up to a store that was closed and like we go, wouldn't it be great if this door opened and you know, it'd be locked, right? <laughs> so I'm sure you can see where this is going. There was some convenience store, it was after midnight. I, I went up to the door like, wouldn't it be great if this door was open and it opened and <laughs> the store was closed, lights turned out, it totally freaked us out. There was a bar next door, we went in and the owner of the bar knew the owner of the store and blah, blah, blah. Now. The only thing that makes this story even remotely worth telling was that years later, I mean like 10 more, 15 years later, I was talking to my older sister and she started telling me a story that one time she was working at a convenience store and she did the morning shift and then the boss called her and said the second shift person had called off. Could she do a double shift? So she did. So she worked 16 hours and then the boss called again and said the third person third shift person called off can you do another shift and she left oh, yeah but when she <laughs> <Me> left <laughs> when she left she forgot to lock the door that was the store oh, i literally oh. am the person who found out that my sister totally by a cosmic coincidence was the one who didn't <laughs> lock the door <laughs> that's that is crazy it, it's so weird how things kind of like tie back into that like, when yeah. did you find out that, like, that, that happened? Like, was that, like, years later? Or was yes, that, like, I mean, the, the thing, I, I had that weird door opening in the middle of the night when I was 13 or 14, and I was probably talking to my sister in my 30s. Oh, wow. <laughs> so at least 15 to 20 years later. <laughs> That's really funny. Well, you know what? My God, or at least my prophet, Bob Dobbs, his yes. uh, power is the power of coincidence, so clearly, right. <laughs> that's a weird coincidence. You were visited by Bob Dobbs at that point. So, uh, when I, I teach a class on critical thinking skills, and there's a little-known uh, fancy word which is apophenia. So your homework mm. this weekend, everybody who's listening, is to work the word apophenia into a conversation with your friends. But yep. that is the sort of cognitive bias or heuristic where your mind seeks for patterns, seeks patterns mm -hmm. where there are none. <laughs> That, and that's actually a really good, I mean, leading into some of these conspiracy theory questions. I sure. feel like that is a giant uh, uh, glossary yep. word, so to speak, talking about that. Yes. So heading into that, this one's getting a little bit closer, I think, to conspiracy theories, at least in that vein. Uh, this one, I think you say came from like uh, the live questions or the live uh, yes. show you did. So the live show, I've done it a few times. John here was actually the host of one of the live performances, and I get... We have a Q&A section in the live show, which it's fun to interact and I do improv, so it's fun to just screw around and you know be on the spot. But it's probably the feedback I've gotten from audiences, it's their favorite part. Like who cares about my jokes hmm. and stories? <laughs> the Q&A, like always the energy level goes way up. Well, people like seeing people as they are. When you're doing you know, stand up, you're doing a caricature of yourself. When you're doing the Q&As, you're, you're kind of just you. You know, I think yep. people like kind of connecting with that. Yeah. But uh, this person wants to know, uh, since only some psychics get arrested for fraud, does that mean the ones who don't get arrested for fraud are legit? Oh, <laughs> I remember that question. And, you know, that question uh, resonated when it came up in the live show, because when I teach critical thinking classes at the college, I sometimes, you know, show articles of psychics who've been arrested and talk <laughs> about well, that's that topic. And then this, so this question will get asked. Somebody will usually ask, well, I mean, are, how come some psychics get arrested and some don't? Basic, shall we say, just like fortune telling and mediums basically are protected by the first amendment. Mm -hmm. um, so just, you know, doing a tarot card reading, even for 10 or 20 bucks, that's, you know, considered like a form of entertainment by the government. 
So I'm not saying that's right or even that I agree with it, but that's sort of why they get away with it, legally speaking. The ones who get arrested are the ones who take it up a notch to where it becomes not even just fraud, but almost like blackmail. Like they'll say, oh, you're being haunted by the evil spirits. You have to pay me $100,000 to dispel them. Okay. And then when it gets up to that level. So if it's basically like a nickel and dime situation, like you walk by a store and it says psyche is a sign psyche, come on in for reading for $10. That's generally protected by the first amendment, uh, not by their veracity or skills. <laughs> um, and then the ones who get arrested tend to have elevated it to a much higher level of fraud and intimidation. It's almost like the multi-level marketing schemes mm-hmm. where it's like, all of those are fraud, but it's like, what, at what level does it reach the actual legal definition of fraud instead of just being kind of a dishonest kind of backhanded or underhanded way of making money, you know? And it gets a little bit into like the sunk cost um, fallacy where when someone spends a little money, they feel like they have to follow it up, even if they're not sure. So, you know, you go in for $25 reading and then they say, well, for a hundred dollars, I'll sell you this amulet or for $200, I'll give you a private reading. And then it like, slowly the amounts of money get bigger. And so it's not like you walk in on the first day and they try to charge you $100,000. It's that it's slowly, you know, they they squeeze you slowly. It's harder to walk away. Yeah. When I I was first kind of coming out of my religious beliefs and kind of really kind of owning my skepticism, uh, I went to a psychic with the sense of, I want to go here just to see, like, I didn't really believe, but it's like, maybe there is something here. Let's check it out. And it was just very basic um it's just typical cold reading stuff and right. she said uh i think it was actually right as i was starting to do uh comedy but at the time i was like an, an assistant manager at a movie or a, at a restaurant and she said oh you're the job you're at right now uh is a job that you've always wanted and you know you're gonna move forward doing this job what do you what do you do by the way she said <laughs> well you're a psychic shouldn't you know so i told her i said well i'm a uh, i'm a assistant uh a manager at a, a restaurant oh yeah this is a job that's made for you blah 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 and i said well yeah but i really don't like it though <laughs> and it was just so funny just it was just she was so wrong but then she would try to like shift to like certain yep. points and then at the end of it i just wasn't convinced and she could tell and she said well, you know, if you had a crystal ball reading for $50 more, that would really be able to tell me. No, I think, I think I'm just right. happy getting suckered out of $10. <laughs> well, I'm, I'm glad that you were suckered out of no more than $10. But it is, you know, uh, for people listening at home, John and I have never discussed this before. I've never heard that anecdote before. And it is kind of like apt that the exact thing I described in general is what happened to him in his story. <laughs> <laughs> Where was I going to go? Oh, so uh, the first question I was going to kind of ask you Mm -hmm. is, uh, so when I was young, I was like really into conspiracy theories. And I'm saying when I was middle school and high school. And I feel like there's a point in time in my life where I was kind of figuring out who I was. And everybody kind of figures it out at that point in time in their life. But to me, I was kind of looking at it as like, I didn't know what it was to be skeptical, but I knew I wanted to be skeptical. Sure. I considered myself a skeptic. And I wanted that to be part of my persona, right? And so to me, I kind of didn't understand the difference between skepticism and cynicism. Sure. Me being a good skeptic was just disbelieving everything <laughs> and doubting everything. And, you know, especially like the stuff that's just a standard, you know, you know, status quo. So to me, I was never the kind of kid mm-hmm. or person who said, Oh, well, you know, we never landed on the moon. That was all fake. I would say, well, yeah, we probably landed on the moon, but there's these <laughs> interesting, you know, videos right. or, you yeah. know, I'm not saying that, you know, Oswald didn't act alone, but it's, you know, it's worth thinking about. And so I never really committed to believing in the conspiracy theories, but it was kind of like, I liked the fact that that made me feel like I was skeptical. And I feel like right. after a while, true skepticism kicked into where, um, I would follow these rabbit holes down and then finally get to the point where it was like, there's nothing here though. Like there, there's no actual right. evidence. It's just a void of evidence. It's just, isn't yeah. it weird how we have all these questions. So I feel like by the time I hit by like September 11th hit, I was yeah. already skeptical as conspiracy theories. Like my first instinct was to right. doubt them and to, you know, actually look into them. So I guess my question is like, what, what is so compelling about conspiracy theories that were 
you know, I mean, here we are, you know, talking yes. about them to people who are skeptical. So what is so what is so compelling about them? And why do some people fall for them while other people can kind of look through the muck and mire and kind of see what they really are? Yeah. Um, first of all, thanks for all of that, John. And also being the, you know, uh, uh, academic that I guess I am or that I know I am. I took like two pages of notes while you were just talking. Like, <laughs> there's like, I have 18 bullet points now that I want to get through. Yeah. Um, I do want to say that, you know, there's a very nice book. It's from the 90s. So maybe a couple of the examples in it are dated, but it's Michael Shermer's book, Why People Believe Weird Things. Mm-hmm. And um, a key thing that comes out of that book, just one of like the main points of the whole book, is that the answer is not because they're stupid. Mm hmm. And that is one thing that I think the, you know, um, humanists and skeptics, including myself and just anyone, it, it, w- it would be a trap, like a mistake, like stepping on a mine in a minefield to blame it, whatever it is, <laughs> whatever part of the Venn diagram we're talking about on s- stupidity or intelligence or low IQ. The brain, the way the brain functions sort of psychologically comes with a lot of foibles and uh, the, some of those foibles can help us survive, and some of those foibles can blind us without us realizing it. Um, I do think humans are storytelling animals. It's how we, that's not a big revelation, by the way, folks. So no one, <laughs> I'm sure no one fell off their couch. But we are just, we explain things with stories. You and I have already told stories to explain right. some of our comments and answers. Mm-hmm. And uh, stories have morals, and stories have points, and stories have punchlines. And sometimes a good story can be compelling, regardless of how factually accurate it is. So when you hear a conspiracy theory about blah, 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 9-11, or blah, 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 we didn't land on the moon, without any reference to its factuality or validity, it's probably a good story. And so people can be drawn. And if the person telling the story is charismatic, almost like a performance Mm -hmm. art, people can be drawn to that. So it is, um, I think that is part of it. Like storytelling not only enriches our lives, but does inform us how to be a human and how to participate in our own societies, like of morals and etiquettes and and, uh, what that kind of stuff. But it can also, you know, um, derail us. I do like your little, um, you know, commentary about the word skeptical. Another thing I talk about in class a lot, because it's a word that gets misused, you know, people who deny climate change are sometimes called climate change skeptics. Eh, wrong. <laughs> they are not skeptics. They are, you know, climate right. change deniers. Mm-hmm. And although I will not call them stupid collectively, they are climate change ignorant of the facts, which is, you know, the, the skeptics credo is often associated with um, Carl Sagan. Extraordinary claims require extraordinary evidence. Right. So skeptics are into evidence. If you can present us with evidence, we will be very interested. Actually, mm-hmm. a skeptic is open-minded, not cynical and closed-minded, as you pointed out. Right. So people who want to, you know, John, what, what got me into this a couple of weeks ago is I had lunch with a friend of mine, uh, well-read, again, smart guy, but he is way down the conspiracy theory rabbit hole. And he was going off about not only 9-11, but the, the school shooting. That's in the, uh, to put it kindly, that's in very poor taste. <laughs> yes. You're going to say much. that school shooting was, uh, you know, staged with crisis actors and uh, what no one was really killed. And it's just the government trying to take your guns away from you. Mm-hmm. That is amazingly uh, insensitive. Insensitive. <laughs> yes. Thank you for helping me finish that sentence. <laughs> <laughs> And uh, I mean, uh, uh, another friend of mine I was telling this about said that uh, he would have walked out, but he couldn't have continued to sit at the table with someone who was going off on Sandy Hook uh, conspiracy right. theories. The, the, to go back to being skeptical and being open-minded, there's something I've noticed about, I'm going to say most, most conspiracy theories, and you touched on it a little bit. In conspiracy theories, a lack of evidence is considered evidence. Mm-hmm. Like in no other realm of science or history <laughs> would we say, well, there's no evidence of this happening. That's why we believe it happened. <laughs> right. But what I mean is if you start talking about like UFOs and someone will say, well, it's a government cover up or the military's got all that information. You know, you know, that's not evidence. <laughs> you know, go get the evidence. If that's what you think is happening, 
go get the evidence and show me. But until then, you can't say it's all a cover-up. Like that's not evidence. That's the, actually the lack of evidence that they then like spin onto its head and try to use it as evidence. So there have been, um, and I've only done like half these bullet points, John, but this will be the last one. <laughs> there have been in history and in real life conspiracies. You know, a group of men got together and conspired to assassinate Abraham Lincoln. But that was not a conspiracy theory. That's a conspiracy fact. There's evidence, right. there's facts, it can be researched, it can be counter-researched, and you can study the evidence. Just like uh, climate change skeptics are using the word skeptic wrong, conspiracy theorists are using the word theory wrong. They do not have theories. They have right. stories. Conjecture, right. <laughs> Conjecture. <Blanket> conjecture. <laughs> it has conspiracy theory, stories, and conjectures. Um, a theory, of course, is an, a, a wide-ranging, com uh, compelling explanation of the natural world based on evidence and capable of predicting the future. So a conspiracy theorist theories have none of those things. <laughs> so. right. Yeah, that's what a lot of people who I kind of argue conspiracy theories with get to the point where they say, well, you're just not willing to open your mind and accept anything that's not just on the norm hmm. and you know you you know you just wouldn't believe a conspiracy theory and i say i actually do believe conspiracy theories you know like um i don't know if anybody in your audience knows who gary webb is and i won't get too far into it but he he essentially uncovered the fact that the united states government was selling cocaine and you know new york hmm. and los angeles which was started the crack epidemic that is an actual fact and you can look into that and see that, you know, he published an article in the San Jose Times and that was shut down because obviously, you know, the CIA didn't want it run and he ended up committing suicide. And that's where I kind of don't know where to take the conspiracy theory. That's kind of why I drop it, because a lot of people say, oh, he committed suicide, huh? And to me, yeah, like you said, until you prove that there was something nefarious about his death, right. I'm not going to believe it. But it is a fact that he did uncover this, had a newspaper article before it got uh, buried. And that's a true thing that seems crazy and against the norm, like the, the government doing right. this. Uh, but it, it is something that is true. So I, I will believe a conspiracy theory when it reaches that level of being so proven. So I'll just say, I don't know any of the facts of your case, so I'll just let your story stand on its own you know, merits for the purposes of our conversation. I'll just say, you know, uh, when things like that are uncovered, those are conspiracies. They're not theories. Like That's there are conspiracies yeah. in life and in history and in government, to be sure. You know, I'm not I'm I'm certainly not advocating that everyone should just believe everything, you know, that the president right. said, for example, like we shouldn't just <laughs> right. trust the government for no good reason either. Um, but conspiracy, you know, theories and theorists, you know, another big problem, um, John, there's a, a saying some of people may have heard this before. It's a famous mafia saying uh, three people can keep a secret if two of them are dead. <laughs> right. Yeah. <laughs> And even then, you still got to worry about the one guy. I think you're correct. So <laughs> almost any famous conspiracy theory, uh, you know, I watched that documentary. I can't think of the name of it. If anyone knows, go ahead and type it in for me. It was on Netflix the past couple of years about the um, flat earthers beyond the edge, oh, beyond the horizon. Uh, beyond the curve. Beyond the curve. Yeah, um, that was good. Yes. And um, I didn't realize until watching that documentary that the, that – Flat earthers are the conspiracy theory of all conspiracy theories. Oh, yeah. Because you kind of have to believe almost every other conspiracy theory along the way. <laughs> and just to... Well, go ahead, John. Well, I was going to say, uh, uh, that's. I, I wonder how much of that is people actually believing this or people sure. making money off the fact that they can get people to believe this, you know? Well, that comes back to me referring to conspiracy theories as a form of storytelling. You know, if someone can have a podcast or do a speech and they're charismatic and compelling and it's kind of performance art, then so right. be it. But it doesn't make what they're saying true. And again, it does seem like flat earthers in particular seem to have a lot of fun. So when you're yeah. online, you can't be yeah. sure if, if they might be joking around or how serious they are. But uh, just to take, you know... Um, whether it's flat earthers, you know, the moon landing being faked as a conspiracy theory, just how many people would have to be involved? 
right. It's not just Stanley Kubrick. You know, he had a whole movie <laughs> crew. He had a right. whole studio. He had actors. He had all the a- astronauts. You know, that, that's you can't have a conspiracy with hundreds of participants. <laughs> that's right. not how they function. <laughs> and that's one of my biggest arguments with the 9-11 conspiracy is there would have to be so many people. Mm-hmm. I mean, just even just the, the contractors who came into the building to take sure. down the drywall, put up the explosives, yeah. put the drywall. Like that's just there's just so many people on various levels. And yep. because in a certain level, some people in government know how to keep a secret and the yeah. CIA and stuff like that. But even then, time is going to expose those. But if you just have just random people have to be involved with this, somebody right. somewhere is going to spill the beans. And I guess yeah. that's why they blew up Building 7, I guess, right? Yeah, well, yes. They, they put all the people who knew about the conspiracy in Building yeah, 7. Yeah, in Building 7, yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> all right, so my, uh, my next question is going to kind of hit on some of the vacuum of evidence because I feel like it's, it's difficult arguing with people who believe in conspiracy theories because it's hard because showing them actual evidence is difficult because they're just going to find out with some other vacuum of evidence that just dismisses right. that and say, well, what about this? So that's kind of a hard argument because you're, you're arguing a lot of nuance there. One of the weird things to me, though, is the end of the world conspiracy theories of, oh, the, the world's going to end on this specific date and this specific year, this specific time. And then that comes and passes. And all the people who followed <laughs> this person who made these predictions still somehow believe the, the, the nonsense yeah. that they come up with. Well, this is why I interpret it wrong or whatever. Like, what's, what's the psychology behind that where you can see someone is obviously wrong and still say, oh, but, you know, they're going to be wrong next time or right next time, you know? Right. Like, I do think there's some um, identity politics involved. You know, there are some philosophers who've pointed out that when you interpret language, uh, like, I don't know, like a deeply or meta, like deconstruct language, um, when people make claims about what they believe in, it's not relevant whether or not they believe in what they're saying. They're, I, what's relevant is that they're identifying themselves. So that's where you get into, you know, it wasn't your question, but it's the, the big example would be people who say that they're a Christian, but don't follow any teachings of Christ or the Bible that are identifiable. Right. You know? <laughs> right. now, now, some of those people might be hypocrites or liars, but uh, to give people the benefit of the doubt since I can't read their minds or see into their hearts, in the very least, uh, some of those people are just identifying themselves. You know, like I'm a Republican, I'm a Democrat, I'm a Christian. There's, it's a kind of identity politics. And I think that goes into it, like with the flat earthers, like the ones that were in that documentary that take at least a little more seriously or a little more invested, maybe I should say, you know, that's their identity. And once you're self-identifying yourself, it's it's, uh, hard to you know, deprogram yourself. One little fact or one little conversation with John or Jerry or one podcast episode is not going to convince somebody to deconstruct their identity. Yeah. Well, I think it it goes back to, I think, the sunken cost. uh, Yeah, I was thinking the same thing. You know, this is who I am. For me to say, oh, I'm wrong, I don't have to completely change who I am. Like, um. I used to be very conservative for most of my life until really just a few years ago. And I don't think, I think for a long time I wasn't conservative, but wouldn't, wouldn't make the jump to calling myself a moderate or more moderate or liberal or whatever um, until Trump came along. And I think it was, uh, this is kind of realization I just had to where my identity was a conservative, but once I didn't want to identify as a conservative, that was the Trump conservative. Yeah. That's what kind of made me have the, with the willingness to kind of be, okay, well, I'm not that anymore. Let me explore then what I am and find out where I do stand on this political spectrum. Yeah. Um, and, and part of the uh, irony to me of that is there's another sort of psychological point, which is, uh, I don't know, sometimes called something like the, the illusion of consistency which is that most people think consciously or unconsciously or subconsciously or pre-consciously that they've been the same person their whole life. Like, because they they just, they're, they construct like a backstory narrative for themselves where they haven't changed. Right. And so even when they do change, they don't think they're a different person. So they just see it as a continuation of who they've always been. Right. Um, That's interesting because sometimes I have to fight like placing my current self on myself 10 years ago right? and then say, oh, yeah. I, I wouldn't have thought that 10 years ago, though. I would, you know, that's not how yes. my mind would have worked. Yep. 
Yep. Yep. John, I know exactly what you mean. In the 90s, I voted for Bush the Elder. <laughs> yeah, so did I. So, oh, no, not in the 90s. In the 2000s, I did. Right. I wouldn't have been old enough yet in the 90s. So. Well, you voted for Bush the Younger then. Yes. <laughs> I'm a little so, yeah, older we, than John. We, <laughs> so actually, I don't know if you know this, but I actually, uh, my church, the Free and Critical Thinking Church of Autonomous mm -hmm. Thought, or Buddyism, actually has an end-of-the-world prophecy. Okay. Uh, What's your end-of-the-world prophecy? Okay. So, uh, as you know, I'm, I'm kind of my religion is kind of loosely based off of uh, the Church of the Subgenius, mm -hmm. and Bob Dobbs in 1980 predicted that the end of the world would be on July 5th, 1998. Now, I know what you're thinking is 1998. That's come and gone already, but that's just because you're pink and don't really know the way of the world, Jerry. Everybody right. knows that the, the conspiracy has changed the calendar how many times. From taking years off, putting years on, taking months out, adding extra days. So we really have no clue what year we're currently in. We just know that it's not July 5th, 1998 yet, right? Oh, right. So I think I figured out by studying the ancient texts and scriptures, a.k.a. Sure. Uh, American dystopian novels. Right. Uh, and what I've come to the conclusion of, we're obviously very clearly, and I don't think anybody can deny this, living right smack in the middle of 1984, right? Sure. <laughs> that seems very obvious. So what that tells me is we have 14 years until the end of the world, or at the very <laughs> least 14 years to come up with a good excuse as to why it didn't happen. So that's just as good as anybody else's end of the world prophecy. Am I right? Uh, it's very good. I want to point out that uh, a, a live listener right now just said that for you and me, uh, that don't that. don't ask, don't tell. Oh yeah, should apply to anybody who voted for Bush. <laughs> <laughs> hey, I'm cool with that. I'm cool yes, with that. I'm don't cool ask me, that. and I will. I won't. Yeah, don't ask, again. don't tell. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So here's one thing that I definitely want to kind of get into with you because I, I think you and I have talked about this on a personal level before, um, and I feel like you were kind of engaged with me when I was going through this on Facebook. But I've actually had. Uh, a true, honestly, goodness, Mandela effect uh, that kind of blew my mind a few years ago. Okay. So I was wondering if you kind of wanted to kind of talk about that a little bit and dive into a conversation on, you know, that whole topic. Um, so the Mandela effect is when people re kind of remember things wrong and are very, very certain that their wrong memory is right. Right. Uh, it, it's it's uh, the phrase Mandela effect refers to sort of people who thought that Mandela had died in jail and then later realized that he was still alive and that it couldn't reconcile. It was almost like having two competing memories in their head. Right. <laughs> and this is the thing I wanted to kind of talk about because before I had my Mandela effect, I understood the concept. I understood where it came from and I understood a bunch of different examples. Uh, like for example, like instead of the Berenstein bears, it's actually the Berenstain bears. Yes. Um, instead of, you know, we all colloquially think mirror, mirror on the wall. It's actually, if you watch, I think, Snow White, it's magic mirror on the wall. But these things are kind of a little more easily explained because uh, sure. Baron Steen, like the Steen is a more common last name than Stain. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and then things like uh, the original was magic mirror on the wall, but then someone copied the original and said mirror, mirror on the wall. And somebody right. copied the copy and then copied. So that stuff sure. kind of seems more, but to me, the actual Mandela effect of having that memory of, no, like I know that yes. Mandela died. And I yeah. didn't have that. What I had, I think, was kind of similar in that. Um, and here's, I'll kind of set up quickly if I can. And I, this is why I think it really blew me, uh, blew me away, because I was having an argument with somebody on Facebook who's trying to say uh, the Mandela effect, the Large Hadron Collider, the double slip test, and he kept calling it the multiverse theory, all prove that we slip in and out of different universes. Right. And this all started back in 2013 when they started doing the experiments with Large Hadron Collider, and that's sure. when Nelson Mandela died. So this all proves it. And I'm saying, come on, dude, like you're, this is kind of crazy. Like, so he's telling me, well, no, I can prove to you that history changed. And I said, well, what do you mean by history changing? Like, like we have a broader sense of history. Like, what? He's like, right. no, what you think happened actually changed. And so he asked me, uh, how many people were in the car? when JFK was assassinated. And I'll ask you to see, because uh, it's interesting to me, but I've asked people like, so were you born when JFK was assassinated? Like, do you remember it happening? Me? No, I, I, that was before okay. my time and I have no memory of when it actually, you know, from that time. 
because I, it seems to me that people who were there and remember it will always get the answer right. People who have watched it through TV right. very often get it wrong. They, they can get it right, but usually they get it wrong, and I have a theory as to why. But I'll ask you how many people you think were in the car when JFK was assassinated. I'm going to um, – I feel like I should be a better sport and just play along. Right. So I will give you an answer in like 10 seconds. But I'm going to tell you, my real answer to questions like that is, I don't know. Right. And I suspect that one of the reasons we get different answers is because of people guessing. Right. We're a lot so, more, we feel like we're a lot more <laughs> confident in what we know right. than we actually are. So right. we, make, we make a guess. But for me, it was like I said, I was very much into conspiracy theories. Right. So for me, I was like, well, no, I've, I've watched this Apruder film a sure. million times. I know. And so I, I very confidently said there were four people in the car. It right. was the president, the first lady, and I was wrong, but I initially said the mayor of Dallas. And that right. was the fallacy of memory because it was actually the governor of Texas. Yeah. There and was I another. Said, and then, uh, and then yeah. a driver. So there was sure. four people. And the guy said, no, you're wrong. There's six. And he, there was actually, they were in a limousine. And so I figured, well, I can prove this wrong. I just go on the internet and find right. pictures of it. Right. Go to Wikipedia and find it. And I couldn't. I couldn't find an image with just four people in the car. I learned now that there was two Secret Service agents and the governor's wife. And this was all just brand new information to me. Sure. To where I was telling people it's almost as if there were four people who went to the moon on Apollo 11 and you just didn't even know about it. <laughs> and I had to kind of reconcile. And right. I, I remember making up fake like memories like, I would, I would say, I said to myself, like, I remember you asking your dad, because I, I was thinking the car was a sedan, just a four-door, and right. not like the extended. And I remember sure. telling my dad, um, well, it, they keep saying the presidential motorcade or the presidential limousine, but that's not a limousine. And I remember my dad telling me, well, a limousine isn't necessarily a stretch limo. It's just a nice luxury car that's being chauffeured. So I was like, I remember having that memory, and that's attached to that other memory. Right. It wouldn't make sense otherwise. But then I realized what I was doing was just <laughs> trying to find a way to make that memory fit. And that Correct. was a real memory. But I remember the memories from when my grandma needed a ride to the airport and none of right. us could give her one. So she got a limo and I was like, whoa, grandma's showing up in a limo. That's pretty cool. And then it would just end up being a Lexus. So that's where that memory's from. But I robbed it to go, no, no, this confirms that my initial right. memory was right. And I think just the fact that I was in a argue, an argument that I knew I was right on, I know that the Large Hadron right. Collider didn't cause rip in time and space, and we're moving between different universes. So it's, but so my mind just would not allow myself to admit that I was wrong. And it, it seriously gave me some PTSD for a couple of days until I sure. walked <laughs> through that cognitive dissonance. Sure. That's a very, like, a real psychological experience that you had. Mm -hmm. I do think that you know, our memories are not reliable. And right. just as the neuroscience of memory is not as accurate as people would think. It's well known to trial lawyers that the least reliable form of evidence is eyewitness testimony. However, right. it's also the most compelling type of evidence to a jury. Right. Again, so, it goes back to storytelling. Yes. So you got this, you know, that's just like a practical example of the situation of our memories are just not that reliable. In college, I used to date this girl who was from Washington, D.C. And she, you know, we were like teenagers and like 18, 19. And one time she asked me out of the blue what state Washington, D.C. was in. <laughs> and I thought to myself, I swear to God, this is true. I thought Washington, D.C. was its own thing. I didn't think it was a state. Well, she lived right. there, so she must know. So I guess it is right. a state. And so I guess Delaware... And then she laughed at me and goes, see, people don't even know that Washington, D.C. is its own thing. So uh, I asked, she was <laughs> trapping me. Right. Um, but also, it just goes back to not guessing. Like, that's why, not that I'm a, not, not, you know, me and Kanye West are two motherfucking geniuses. But yeah. uh, not that I'm a genius. It's just I've learned not to guess answers to things I don't know the answer to. Right. And that's interesting. Uh there's some shows, speaking of Netflix shows, that's like deals with like this kind of stuff. And one of the things that they did was they asked people, they said, uh, we're going to give you an answer or a question where the answer is a number. And mm -hmm. you can just give us like a range. And as long as the number falls within that range, you're right. And they put money on the line. If you get three right, you get okay. like a hundred bucks. Okay. And none of the people got any of them right because they were doing such a, a, a small range. 
and they were they were so confident that they knew around about at least how many right. books were in the Bible or how many countries right. are in Africa or whatever sure. it is that they gave like a small enough range that they were outside the range. And the point was, you could have said one to one million, right. one to yep. infinity and one, but yep. we're so confident that we know the answer, even when we don't, yes. that we feel like we can make at least an accurate guess, you know? Well, there's also um, the anchoring effect, I think. And I do think mm -hmm. the anchoring effect is another way to talk about conspiracy theories. The anchoring right. effect is when the last piece of information you heard takes like an unusual amount of prominence in your like conscious mind. And it ends are in your unconscious mind as well, uh, pre-conscious, subconscious, whatever, um, that it affects what you say or do next. So the biggest example of this is sale prices. If you're in the store and it says, this coat sells for $199, but it's on sale for $99. Your only point of reference are those two numbers. So mm -hmm. the first price, the not sale price is considered like the anchoring effect. I would do, I do a thing in class sometimes, John, where I'll ask students, I'll say just, I said, you might, this is just a trivia question, you might know, but just write down what you think the answer is. Um, true, false, the population of Vietnam is 10 million people. And then, John, what'd you say, true or false? Um, I know it's small, but I know it's also heavily populated, so I would guess probably true, I guess, although I don't know. Okay, well, and most people don't. It's random trivia. Why would you know? <laughs> right. <laughs> so the answer is false. And then right. I just ask them, I tell them that that was false. What do you think the answer is? What do you think the population of Vietnam mm. is? And I get a classroom, 20, 30 students. And I would just say the majority of the students guess the number. What, what would you guess, John? Well, we know it's not 10 million. Correct. Uh, so I'm going to say it's somewhat of a trick question. Maybe it's close to 10 million, so maybe it's 9 million. So, of course, you could have said anything. And also, mm -hmm. when you do sociological or social psychology studies, you do large groups, right? You get 100 or 1,000, right. and you look for a trend. Right. So the trend is that people will say a number near 10 million because that's the number that they just heard. Mm. Um, and the answer is 100 million. Oh, wow. See, I was, because I was thinking, okay, maybe right. it's, most people are going to go down because that's what I was thinking. Okay, maybe it's closer to maybe two or three. But then I was like, maybe that's the thing is like they, people go way down because it's not 10 million. So it is kind of almost that where like I was thinking, okay, it's less than 10 million, right. but it's way more. <laughs> so now think about the anchoring effect and someone who doesn't know much about a topic, let's just say 9-11, right. and then a charismatic speaker tells them, well, you know, black vans were seen there or someone talking yeah. about Sandy Hook says, well, you know, if you look at photos of that school from 1988, it's completely different. And right. if, if you were just being open-minded and friendly and having you know, a conversation in the coffee shop, you just heard those things. So they're right. going to have a kind of prominence in your thinking about the topic, even if you're trying to dismiss it, like, oh, this guy's crazy or well, how about, right. there's no crisis actors, but it's still your imagination is being occupied, being anchored right. by that. Uh, narrative and and I, and I think that kind of leads back to where i was as like a middle schooler and a high school kid to where you know i i didn't believe this stuff but just the fact that it was there in my subconscious was enough for me to go but maybe you know there's these questions here that we don't have answers to you know so like you right. said even if you don't want to believe it or even if you're questioning it to some extent it's still just it's there you know it's in your mind and pervasive and it's really interesting when we talk about the, the lack of evidence, I, I want to say one other thing from my bullet points from earlier. If, you're, if you are a person who wants to overthrow any well-established fact or theory, let's say if you're a flat earther and you want to try to prove that the earth is not round, one must do the following. If you could take every book in the library on the earth being round, <laughs> Right. And you stack them up tall, you'd have a huge stack. Like, I don't even know, about 10 stories tall. Right. And now, if you are the flat earther, you need to get 11 stories worth of evidence. Mm -hmm. Like, your <laughs> balance of evidence has to far surpass, not even just get close. Right. Has to far surpass the um, existing evidence. So if you're a creationist and you're serious about debating science, which none of them are, <laughs> you have to, your balance of evidence 
has to outpace all the ev evidence in support of evolution. Right. And so this is what every conspiracy theory lacks. You know, if you so, think, yeah, go ahead. Well, I was going to say, because this leads into the kind of the next question I was going to. Yeah, we have about, about 10 is... minutes, John. So pick okay. your next one or two questions. What do you really want to talk about? Yeah. And we'll try to make them like speed rounds. I'll give short right. answers. <laughs> so, well, this is, this is actually the last one. And it's probably, 10 minutes is probably just perfect for us to kind of talk <laughs> about it. And it kind of ties everything up is that, um, like the, the rise of like QAnon kind of coming with this sense of, of the internet age. And sure. like you said, to where to refute an actual founded point, you mm -hmm. know, you would have to come with way more information to, yep. to actually refute it. And this is what I wonder, like, I feel like there is the appearance that there's enough information to refute well-founded, you know, theory or historical, you know, consensus there's a, an appearance that there's so much information that contradicts the norm because there's so much stuff on the internet that people can just go and, and because, you know, there's bloggers out there saying this because people have this false, it's almost like we have this weird sense of everybody knows not to trust anything on the internet, but the same token, we still have the sense of, well, I found it on the internet. There's yeah. all this information here. So it lends this credibility to what would otherwise just be your nonsensical uncle talking weird nonsense yep. at Thanksgiving. Now there's some blogger. Now there's some right wing, somewhat legit news source, so to speak, putting this stuff out there where it's kind of almost difficult to really tell. And it seems like, Oh, there is enough evidence to dispute this thing, yeah. especially if you already want to believe it. First of all, uh, there's used to be a, a kind of a, a, you know, a jokey philosophy question of, if you gave a million monkeys, a million typewriters, and a million years, would they create Hamlet? And the internet has proven the answer to that is no. <laughs> um, well, we've only had 10 years, Jim. You're right, you're right, give them time. <laughs> the monkeys are still out there typing, give yeah. them a chance. We're still, we're still working. <laughs> I think the appearance of evidence is a great phrase. I kind of like, I, honestly, I think, uh, first of all, anyone listening to this, John on Facebook is fantastic. Please follow him on Facebook. He gets into these great, lengthy debates, which I enjoy reading and I occasionally dip into, but I don't do it a lot. And that's partially because I, I don't get a lot of personal joy out of correcting, you know, conspiracy theories or arguing with trolls online. <laughs> but I, I do sometimes want to correct things because I imagine like the third person who might be reading it. Like I'm not trying to convince the original poster. Right. I'm just trying to get accurate information to balance the whatever BS mm -hmm. motivated me. And I want to give an example of that that comes from talking to people, to creationists. Something that you'll hear is that, you know, the body is so complicated. How could it, you know, quote unquote, just evolve? And then people start giving examples like a childbirth or the eye. Mm -hmm. Oh, yeah. Wonderful eye. And then, uh, yeah, besides the fact that the eye is riddled with flaws and imperfections and could hardly be considered a perfect <laughs> machine at all. You know, if the person who designed the eye worked for Steve Jobs, he would have uh, fired him from whatever slave camp he was working in at the time. Um, but even aside from all of that, the eye is one of the most studied organs by evolutionary biologists. And so... If, if, if this hypothetical person who really exists, because I've had this conversation many times, if this hypothetical person were actually interested in the evolutionary history and processes of the eye, there's a lot of interesting information. There's books, there's articles, there's research, there's experiments. There's a, uh, this is a go-to example. If I actually had regular listeners to this podcast, they've probably heard me say it before, but since, except for you and me, John, no one else listens to this podcast regularly. I'm going to just uh, repeat this uh, nice uh, data point. There are um, fish that live in South America in one of the, in the mountains. They have some deep lakes. And the fish, over many generations, uh, their offspring and offspring worked their way to the bottom of the lake. Mm -hmm. And uh, at the bottom of the lake, it was so dark that kind of like cave fish, their eyes stopped functioning. Right. They were blind and their eye they still like had eyeballs but they were like our appendixes or whatever you know they're like useless organs that right. evolution had right. no longer had need for now those same fish had offspring and offspring that over many generations worked their way back up to the top of the lake and they grew new eyes inside of their non-functioning eyes it's not even that their old eyes somehow turned back on. 
Right. It's that they re-evolved a whole new set of eyes <laughs> inside yeah. their non-functioning eyeballs. And again, if, if anybody wants to play the God works in mysterious ways card, feel free. But if we're here to talk about science, evolution right. explains that. Right. <laughs> and you can go and read about it. And even better, not that everybody will do this, but anybody who is motivated can participate in the project of science. Right. Go do some experiments. Go do some field work. Go, go into caves and study blind fish. You can do all right. of those things. Um, in that Beyond the Curve film, there's like one of the subplots is a guy who puts together his own experiments to prove the Earth is oh, round. Oh, right. <laughs> and every one of his experiments proves the Earth is round. Right. And, uh, and he refuses to sort of admit it, at least on camera. Right. And, you know, I still like that guy because he's, a, he's proving my basic point. You can go do these experiments yourself. Yes. Yeah. You know, you and that's go ahead. That's the thing. Because uh, uh, I, I went through a phase on YouTube where I just found whatever I could to debunk uh, the flat earth conspiracy. Because there's a lot of people out there doing, you know, showing why these arguments fail. And uh, sure. it's funny because that is but one thing that they always <laughs> say is, oh, these scientists just go to school and they teach them what to say. They teach them. It's almost right. like a religion, the science of religion. Right. And one of the, um, I think it was Professor Dave Explains talks about it and says, okay. You know, these students go and they learn how to do these experiments. They're not yes. told what is true. They actually go and do the experiments and figure it out on their own. They go to these labs. If you ever went to one of these schools, yes. you would see that they're not just there being taught what to say. They're actually being right. taught the practical application of this, which, like you said, yep. anybody can do. I mean, even if it's just yep. a simple a lab experience for a fifth grader, uh, you can do oh, the process. When I was like eight years old and I – probably had some naive child's view of what it means to be a scientist. I decided <laughs> I would do an experiment. And on my, the street I grew up on had a lot of Buckeye trees. So right. I walked around one day, I collected like a bag full of Buckeyes. I peeled them all because the inside kind of looks like a brain. I don't know if you know what I mean, or anyone listening knows what I mean, okay. but if you peel right. like the green husk off, there's like the fruity part on the inside. And I put like 20 of those into a cup and filled the cup with water and put it in my closet so I could see what happens. And when it started to smell, my mother went into the closet <laughs> and asked, <laughs> what is this? And I said, it's my experiment. <laughs> and she threw it away. <laughs> well, so what was your conclusion of your experiment? <laughs> my conclusion is that if you, if you soak Buckeye fruit in a glass of water for a summer, they're going to smell. <laughs> and your mother will not be pleased with you. <laughs> uh, we're going to wrap up in a minute. I, I will say I'll give it this episode a quick edit and post it as a permanent episode so everyone who's listening please uh share it with your friends and tell people about my little project um researching satire and doing this comical heathen show john i don't want to sort of end uh, uh too abruptly so let's just do one more quick question of some kind let's see what's uh all right well here's i guess we kind of already covered this sure um there's one uh jace uh cobra writer cooper writer wrote uh, is your intention here to dispel or explore conspiracy theories? I think we kind of just basically <laughs> went to, to explore them. But I think also kind of exploring them and kind of understanding, like I said, why people think this and how they kind of get spread helps to dispel them. Oh, um, so while Jace um, is someone I do not know, I think um, that was on one of the Facebook pages I shared the, the, it to. Do, do you have in front right. of you the, the Facebook page? Um, yeah, let me find out real quick. Cause it was it's like, the, it's the, the humanist society of yes. central Ohio. Go ahead and say uh, it correctly. Yeah. yeah. Uh, humanist community of central Ohio. That's a Facebook page. I sometimes post there. Uh, thank you for allowing me to post there. And if you're in Ohio or central Ohio, please check them out. I do not know this Jace person. Uh, I think what Jace was asking though, was whether or not this was going to be, shall we say a pro conspiracy theory conversation uh, okay. or a debunking <laughs> conspiracy theory. Now, I right. don't mean to um, Jace-splain Jace. If Jace meant something different, <laughs> please correct me. But that's how I took their question. Right. So, I mean, I, I do want to – I think we could use that as a good question to end on just to – I right. can sort of make this comment uh, in, in summary of our conversation in the sense that I think skeptics should be open-minded to evidence. And given that there are, in fact, conspiracies in history and in government, I am open to evidence. 
But what is colloquially referred to as conspiracy theories, we didn't land on the moon, the earth is flat, Sandy Hook, blah, blah, blah. Those um, stories, those narratives are bereft of compelling evidence and definitely do not have a balance of evidence as it happens, except for the occasional example, John, you and I didn't really talk about like why conspiracy theory X is simply wrong. We wound up right. 80% of our time talking about the psychology. Right. Conspiracy. Like why do they even exist? Why are people interested in them? And in some ways that's kind of a, a, its own interesting topic because I also think for people who do want to debunk or debate conspiracy theories, it is kind of like a psychological debate, not yeah. an evidence-based debate. It, right. Um, I don't want to say know your enemy because I don't consider these people enemies. I consider them human beings. Right. And not everybody is going to be woke at the same rate. So, Right. But know your topic, though. Know, yes. you know, know what you're know what you're getting into and, yes. and how, you know, because I think the biggest thing and this is kind of the last thing I'll say as a wrap up. The biggest right. thing I am kind of working on myself is um, like the backfire effect. You know, like once once you have it in your mind that this is true. Right. You're going to uh, kind of every new piece of information you're going to weigh against that thing that you already think is true. And once, you know, uh, you get in that position of cognitive dissonance, when you're realizing what you want to believe is true, isn't true. A lot of times yep. you just dig in even more and you just completely ignore any of the reality and just really double down on that belief. So I kind of have to work on not kind of like just banging people's head against the wall with this reality. They don't want to deal with and kind of yep. just give it to them in small doses and let them digest it a little bit. Yeah, like the guy I had uh, brunch with a couple of weeks ago, uh, he's well read and he's not stupid at all. He has just gone down like a, a narrative path that is way down the so-called rabbit hole. Right. So, you know, that guy's not going to change his mind in one minute. But right. if I can, you know, give him things to think about. <laughs> right. It's, there's an old computer programming uh, saying, you know, garbage in, garbage out. Right. So you got to take... You got to do the best you can to sort of monitor what you're intaking, look right. for evidence, you know, and so and, uh, you know, logical arguments and logical fallacies and so on and so forth. Well, I John, hey, best, well, oh, go ahead. Go ahead. What well, you're well, one of the best. Just, last thing for me is uh, one of the best things for me is just finding a good epistemology of how do I determine what's true and what's not true and just mm -hmm. weigh things against that each and every time. So at least you have something somewhat consistent as far as how to determine reality or so. We mentioned briefly at the beginning, John, that because we're now living in pandemic times, <laughs> there's less live entertainment and and less audiences as people prudently stay home. Uh, you do you have done or do do comedy in the <laughs> Cleveland area? I know, right? I did that on purpose just for you. Uh, <laughs> you. Do you, do you have any shows coming up, or how, how what do you got to plug? So we're still waiting for Brothers Lounge to come back online because they're kind of they're like a venue, so they're not really doing much. They're not even reopened yet, but okay. hopefully we'll get that back up and running. Um, you know, once everything kind of cleared up. And that's and, in Cleveland, uh, right? Brothers Lounge yep, in Cleveland. Yep. Yep. Right off One Seventeenth in right. Detroit there. And then uh, Kelly Moore and I have been working on kind of getting out a podcast, kind of in the same vein as uh, this topic of looking into uh we call it uh an open door with uh, hensler and Moore, and we kind of <laughs> yes. just look at stuff that is maybe interesting to us that maybe we haven't really looked into or look into things that maybe we're skeptical on and maybe take a different approach of let's go to a psychic and see if there's anything there let's sure you know get our auras read and kind of just really look at things with a skeptical mindset but like you said still that open-minded mindset of is this true? And if it's not, then why is it not? If it is, then why is it? And what's convincing about it? Well, so, it could, yeah, we, could, yeah, good. Do we ha and having the experiences will give you like, you know, something to talk about. Right. So we're, we're kind of developing that and we're probably going to be doing it on this platform at first once we do it. So sure. I don't know, maybe mentioning it help, will kind of help us get our butts in gear and actually do it. So it's been known to happen. <laughs> hey, you do remind me to, to anybody in the Cleveland area who, who knows me. Again, it might be two people listening right now. Um, I've uh, historically done a show and mentor at the bar Toth's place and nice. you know that got shut down in the spring at that time it was the longest running independently produced comedy show in a single venue in the state of Ohio yay uh, with that and 50 cents you can buy a cup of coffee in 1972 uh, I will say over the summer the bar did reopen um, 
uh, me and the owner Mike talked over the summer and wanted to hold off on restarting the comedy show. Just there's uh we wanted to both feel like it was a good idea from a health perspective. Plus for him as a bar, there's you know things he has to manage for the health perspective. So the show remains on hiatus. All right. Um, I think having covered that, that seems like a natural, if awkward, place to stop. Um, <laughs> and being being awkward is my superpower, I say, so I should own it. Nat naturally awkward <laughs> is what we do best, Chair. <laughs> <laughs> Heck yes. So uh, we we've had um, a number of live listeners. I'll just thank you guys, and we've been doing some of the chat room. So I appreciate all of your input there. Do watch out for the live episode. It'll come out in a week or so. Or not the live, this is a live episode. I'll edit that out so I sound more smooth. <laughs> Do look out for the uh, podcast episode, which I'll release in about a week or so. Uh, go back to the back catalog where there's a lot of interviews with people like John Fugelsang and Steve Hofstetter uh, and other comedians that you know you may know and love. And um, otherwise, thank you very much for listening. Uh, my name's Jerry. Uh, John, say thank you and goodbye one more time. Thank you and goodbye one more time. Thank you and goodbye, everybody. <laughs> <laughs>